Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture, and we sometimes interview folk about why they left the church, which is what our last episode was about. This week, we got a little something different. I am by myself. This is Josiah. If you if you haven't heard already, Byron has not made an introduction because, well, as he likes to say, he has a real job. So we're recording this during the day, and I have a guest today. He happens to be a pastor who is also a millennial. I'm going to skip over sponsors. We might have a sponsor later in the show, but I'm going to get right into introductions. On the show today, we have none other than Ben Kramer. He's a lead pastor. He's actually a podcaster himself. He's he's on the A Plain Account podcast with Alicia, and they're actually part of this fun millennial pastor podcasting network. And he's also an NNU adjunct professor. Ben Kramer, welcome to the show. Man, it's so good to be here. So real quick, I want to give our listeners some context. Where do you live? How long have you been pastoring? Anything else you want to add? You know, who your spouse is, all the things. What's what's the little personal bits about you that maybe you could you could let our listeners know about who Ben Kramer is? Sure. Uh, born born and raised here in, in Idaho. I spent most of my life in Nampa uh, from about middle school to, to high school. And then Found my way to, to NNU, uh, came back to the Nazarene Church as, as a senior in high school. And that's when I started uh, studying to, to go into ministry. And then I interned at College Church there as a, as a youth intern and then uh, moved to Kansas City for seminary and was a college-age ministries pastor at Kansas City First Church. And then the Intermountain District called me back to Pastor uh, Euclid Avenue Church of the Nazarene, where I'm at right now. Um, it's right in the heart of, of Boise, Idaho. Um, it's just had its 80th birthday recently. Um, and my grandpa, uh, pastor of the church in 1952. Um, and so I, I got my first, whenever anyone asks, like, how long have you been pastoring? He's like, do I count the time from when I was called or first licensed? So like when I was first licensed was, uh, you know, 2004 um, until, until now, but I've been a senior pastor for about seven and a half, seven and a half years now. And have you done all seven and a half years at Euclid? Yeah, seven and a half years as senior pastor at, at Euclid. I'm the 17th pastor of that church. And uh, yeah, some pretty high high turnover over the what, years there. But what's the average? Oh my goodness, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Have yeah. you done the math? I have. So like I have stayed at that church 75% longer than uh, any of the previous pastors. The first longest running pastor stayed there for 19 years, but the rest of them, like even my grandpa was there. It was like a year, year and a half, two years was like the, the average uh, time span um, pastoring there. Seems like uh, there might be something there to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. We, we'll get into that. Later. I'm sure. I'm sure we will. <laughs> but, so a yeah. little bit of Nazar royalty, huh? You're pastoring where your grandfather pastored. Right. But I mean, I'm like, I'm coming back fr- from being a prodigal Nazarene because my, you know, we left the Nazarene church when I was 
little and I don't even remember it and then came back as a as a senior in high school so I don't know if that breaks the the Nazarene tree or royalty or whatever but and my 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 poor uh, grandfather got caught up in some things and uh, ended up in in jail for credit fraud oh my goodness yeah so I don't know if that broke the Nazarene royalty either so I would (laughs) say that might have done it oh my goodness yeah no, no real nepotism advantages there. I would no, say not at all. <laughs> More but like I, I, I what's this to, guy's last name? Uh, yeah, we're, we'll we'll just keep that secret. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So we we have a tendency to do a thing on this show, mm-hmm. and last week we did a variation of it. We had we had a guest on who's actually my little brother. Full disclosure, if you haven't listened, uh, and he the the podcast title was why Andrew left the church. So historically on this show, we have some fun playing with millennial stereotypes. Okay. Last week we played with the stereotype of why are you such a heathen? Because he stops going to church. And obviously we asked permission beforehand and everything. Normally we play games with, with other millennial pastors about like, you know, we ask them questions about how much they love avocado and coffee. So for the sake of setting this next bit up, I just, how old are you? We need to know. Uh, I turned 36 in January. So you're a full-fledged, you're, you're slightly older millennial, but you're definitely a millennial. Yep. And I guess it's safe to assume you probably like coffee and you might like avocados even. You know it. You fit those stereotypes beautifully, but given your sort of, I don't know, your, your, your church pedigree, your Nazarene pedigree, I felt <laughs> the need to maybe shift focus on this game a little bit. So I'm curious how interested you might be in playing a game I'm going to call How Millennial Are You? I'm, I'm, I'm down. That sounds right up my alley. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have 10 questions. And this normally, how we've done it in the past, it's just, you know, out of 10, if you score over five or whatever, you're definitely a millennial. So this one's <laughs> weird. You're a, millenni- a millennial evangelical, however we're going to say that. And so we'll score it out of 10, but we'll ask questions that, might be stereotypical of like, not only are you a millennial, but you very clearly were brought up in the church at a particular time, uh, culturally, during culture wars, during <laughs> worship wars, during all the things. So we're we're gonna start off easy. It's gonna be really casual. Okay. Um, and after this game, I think we'll we'll have a better understanding of just who Ben Kramer is after we uh, we, we lay it all out there stereotypically because obviously stereotypes are the best way to understand. Right. <laughs> Perfect. All right. all right. Question one. Did you grow up going to church? Yes. It doesn't have to be Nazarene, obviously. So right. was there any choice in the matter is question two? Mm. No. So you just obviously you went to church on Sunday morning, whether you wanted to or not. Right. It just wasn't a wasn't a question. So I'm just going to add a little because this is my personal uh, side note that I grew up with, you had to almost be dying sick, right? To miss church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, was, if we could, if we could go out to, to restaurants during the week or, you know, go shopping, but Sunday came along and we, all, you know, all of a sudden suspiciously got sick. We could, we didn't have an excuse. Was there like a bare minimum fever you had to be popping to not go to church? Yeah. Yeah. I had to have like a severe ear infection, you know, not had, you know, almost deaf before before (laughs) not go all right question three some forced fun in the church were you in caravans slash awanas slash some sort of churchified version of boy scouts 
Oh man, no, I I wasn't. Was that offered in the churches you went to? No, not at all. Oh, well, shoot. That's a missed opportunity. I should have done more research on your background to figure out what churches <laughs> you went to as a child. All right. So far, we're on question three. You're two for three. So I, I still have hope that I've okay. nailed you stereotypically. <laughs> Did you ever participate in a very Nazarene thing called quizzing? No, I didn't. Oh, no. I'm going <laughs> to fail at this game. Do you? Obviously, I, I would assume you know what quizzing is still, though, yeah, as, yeah, as pastor now. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, it's hard to explain. How would you even explain quizzing to someone that has no bearing on, like, Nazarene church life? You know, it's like the, the, the most Christianized beauty pageant, but only for scripture verses. And you have to stand up in front of everyone <laughs> and try to show your talent for everyone else of how well you can best your friends at Bible knowledge. Oh my I, goodness. From an outside observer. That's, that's how I've come to the quizzing. That's perfect. I actually sat through a quiz meet where we lost and someone, they called it burning a question or whatever. Cause basically there's 20 questions and you try to get more than your other team. And you have these little buttons that you literally sit on and you have to jump mm-hmm. up and all that stuff. They burnt the last question. They said, how do you, they quoted, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, which is, was a, a youth group standard movie that we were allowed to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, how do you extinguish thine enemies with thine holy hand grenade? And there was, act, and I didn't know this at the time, he got like penalized and everything and almost forfeited the match because he was being so extra about stuff. Oh my gosh. Wow. Christian culture, man. Evangel- yeah, I missed out on that. Yeah, evangelical culture maybe is a better mm-hmm. term for that. All right, so we're two for two. I could have totally screwed up on trying to peg you stereotypically but i think the back half i'll get you i have hope question five were you homeschooled k through 12 man (laughs) i mean was there a reason why was it the fear for like public school turning you into some sort of heathen was it fear of being taught evolution like what was it you know it was a combination of those things the, the culture of Nampa is kind of like the melting pot for all of those sorts of sentimentalities, but also horribly terrible um, school, public school systems. And so like my parents wanted to homeschool us at least from kindergarten to second, third grade, because the school system was just not turning out kids that could pass the standardized tests and things like that. So it was part of that, but also part of like this protection from the public school systems as far as I can tell from my from my parents that was their their motivation Um, and there was definitely the homeschool culture that we were part of like this is it's a separatism we're separating ourselves from public life in order to preserve the Christian heritage were you a a part of like a co-op with other homeschool families and stuff oh yeah we were we definitely were I feel like you have to do that that's just part of it isn't it yeah it was something else, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, so I, I, so we're three, three for two, three for the millennial evangelical. Um, the back half will really be the, we'll see. We'll see if I guess right. Question number six, how many VeggieTales DVDs did you own? And for the sake of this one, we'll also count McGee and Me and Bible Man or any other just like Lifeway DVD you could buy from the Jesus Bookstore. I'm glad you gave exceptions because VeggieTales was a little, uh, 
I'm showing my age again. One of the first round of millennials, I guess. VeggieTales was more like when I was later in middle school, high school. But McGee and me, it was all McGee and me and Adventures and Odyssey. Like yes. we had all of those. And I, I had, I was just telling my, my wife that who it had never, she used the portable CD player and headphones. I had the actual Walkman with the cassette tapes for Adventures of Odyssey. Oh my god! And I would be on my big wheel listening to those as I was outside playing or whatever. And McGee and me was, I was just obsessed with that show. So I just remember going to the Jesus bookstore. I don't even know what version, because there was a couple versions of, you know, the Bible, whatever life, it wasn't just Lifeway. There was a bunch of them in the nineties, particularly. And I remember one time going in like, Oh, don't listen to Christina Aguilera. Listen to Stacy or Oh, don't listen to, you know, this one, listen to this. I'm like, Right. Are they really that compared? Like, there's just a Christian version for every right. secular artist out there. For sure, that's amazing. B- McGee and me, man that that was that was a while ago. That was what I started on long before Veggie Tales. But I'm the oldest of four, so eventually we got to sure. Veggie Tales with the younger ones. But well, and I liked Veggie Tales way better, even older. Like I, I still still enjoys Phil's stuff so oh I, yeah I was joking the other day he was teaching me stuff with some vegetables and now I'm listening to his podcast and he's still Man. teaching me stuff amazing he did a really amazing. good interview of Lecrae that's very worth listening to um, oh, I gotta hear that I gotta all, hear that all about the, the craziness of like being popular with white church but then like saying stuff that made white church uncomfortable because <laughs> obviously Lecrae is African-American so right oh my god super interesting okay I think we're four for two I think I might make up for this. Number seven, when were you first allowed to listen to secular music, if ever, under as a minor? Oh, man. You know, it was, it, I was so, like, being homeschooled, it's not a matter of, like, being allowed to or not. You're just not, you're not aware that it existed. So I, I honestly didn't know, like, secular music until I I entered high school and you know had some more friends beyond the friend group I got a job at Dairy Queen you know and they were playing all this music I hadn't heard before but you know my I grew up hearing Johnny Cash and Nitty Gritty Dirt Band you know I played bluegrass growing up I play banjo and guitar my brother plays fiddle and stuff like that so you know that old bluegrass country music and then Christian like Christian radio stations is all I really knew. Um, but it wasn't until like high school that I actually discovered this whole other world of, of music. I, I don't know if you got, I think it was called breakaway magazine, like the focus on the family, uh, teenage boy magazine. Oh, it, was, no. it was supposed to be some sort of alternative to, I don't, I don't even know what it was supposed to be an alternative for, but when I was about 16, they made the case for Coldplay being actually okay to listen to even though it was secular because they weren't overtly like pagan or even like they weren't cussing they weren't talking about sex they weren't talking about drugs and so i was 16 and i'm like dad focus on the family says i can buy a secular album can i buy Coldplay?" and it was like rush of blood to the head it was it was the it was really popular album oh man clocks and all that jazz and that was my first time i was a 16 year old i was able to buy I was able to go to like the regular store to buy my music for the first time ever. But, yeah. Uh, we'll we count had that for a you. huge dispute in my house because my brother was really into hip hop and rap and brought a ludicrous CD home when he was <laughs> huge. And I, 
it was funny because it was kind of like this righteous indignation moment. Cause I'm like, I've been a, a metalhead since before I knew I was a metalhead. And so like, I was listening, like Christian metal is huge. You know, it's one of the only genres that they actually lead the industry in. And so I was like listening to Haste of the Day, Devil Wears Prada. And my, my dad especially thought it was like Satan's music. I'm like, hey, listen to these lyrics, though. He's not saying the same thing that Ludacris is. You know, at least at least it's Christian, Dad. You know, it's like, my brother lost, I win. Uh, I had the fortune of uh, my parents were listening to, like, Petra and uh, Whiteheart. Oh, yeah. So it was, like, the first iteration of metal. But my dad also grew up breaking all the rules. He was listening to the Beatles when they were telling him to burn the records. And I guess my mom yeah, or my, my dad's mom was kind of rebellious for especially like IBC international or uh, independent Baptist folk. They might've been Grace Baptist. Um, where she just said, well, I'll just buy you stereo headphones. She was saying that to my dad. His mom was saying that to him. So he's like, <laughs> you just listen to it with headphones. No one will know right. what you're listening to. I'm like, wow, that's pretty progressive for like the sixties and seventies. I didn't like, know the devil was stopped by headphones. <laughs> well, apparently I think it was maybe more an appearance thing at that point. So <laughs> Man, well, the fact that you didn't even know about secular music absolutely is an indictment against you with this stereotypical quiz. So I think we're five for two. Mm. Question eight. <laughs> I don't know. This one's a shot in the dark. This is uh, talking to a lot of people our age, and you already said something kind of close to this in some of our previous conversations. So I'm going to take a flyer. How many camp conversions slash altar calls did you go to or participate in growing up? Was Man, there like I, a, was there a yearly, okay, God, I don't know if last year it stuck and I really don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to just pray again real quick. Was that a regular occurrence in your life? It was like, it was regular when we had like church outings. Cause you know, I, I went to a small rural, like, non-denominational church for a really long time and we'd have church outings and stuff like that and they'd have altar calls but they'd have altar calls almost every service too and i it was multiple i lost count like multiple occasions where i just felt like okay it, i think it's time to re-up you know i i gotta i gotta make sure that God, you know jesus is in my heart because i mean i may have like missed him along the way or something so i just gotta be sure you know so that's that's how I handled all those altar calls, but I lost count. There were so many. So the fear-based, uh, you know, salvation tactics oh, were yeah. working on you on a regular basis. Huge. Huge. Oh my goodness. I can clearly remember we had a revivalist, I guess. Maybe they were evangelists leading a revival. I can't remember the semantics because I was, I was probably in middle school, but I knew later on in life that so much of the metrics based on what they are reporting on, like, altar calls were the biggest metric and so one night no one was coming to the altar and so he just said wow the devil must really be working in this church and then suddenly everyone went up <laughs> isn't, oh, that, isn't that so terrible i was so dis. i was maybe 12 or 13 and i was sitting there and I'm like Mom, Dad, don't even go to the altar that was manipulative are you that kidding me yeah i was not Man. happy when in my, so we went through a succession of like six different pastors. So like we had six different splits in this non-denominational church I was part of, but one of the pastors, my, my mom had developed a, a brain tumor while we were there. Uh, just terrible situation all around. I was about seven or eight when it happened, but uh, we had this revival, a healing revival. And 
you know, they asked my mom to come forward because everybody knew what she was going through and stuff like that. And I stood there and I watched as he put his hands on her head, they prayed and my mom just like shook and fell over into the pew. Um, and I, I knew I had witnessed a healing, you know, and fast forward years and I'm in seminary and we're studying, you know, miracles and folk religions classes. And I called my mom cause I wanted to tell the class about when I witnessed a miracle and she broke down on the other end. She's like, I didn't want to like mess with your, with what you believe because you were so hopeful for the first time in a long time. But that pastor pulled me aside and said, if you're not healed tonight, both your sons will lose their salvation and end up in hell. Oh, and so my, my parents actually had to go get that surgery done while maintaining this social, like, reality that they had been healed and i believed that until i was in seminary at like 24 years old and it just like i remember you know that sort of perspective just shattered for me it was it was hard to take in like believing that you'd witnessed a bona fide miracle for that long well dude the fear-based tactics to to force your parents to to continue the charade too just terrible yeah oh my goodness yeah just terrible well that's Uh, so i guess the flyer question (laughs) i was yeah there's sadly far too many of those experiences i've heard people share with me where it's like anxiety fear-based like i wasn't sure like the the pastor said another thing like well shoot i probably i probably need to do it again like i don't want to burn in hell forever which we can even get into that topic later if we (laughs) if we have time all right so question nine you've only answered two in in the negative so so far you're like what is that? Eight, eight for, I don't know. You, you got six for two. Um, oh, wow. So question nine, how many, how many ties, or how many times did you fall asleep in a 15 passenger van after <laughs> driving to or from youth conferences, mission trips, camps, et cetera? Like, did you get to a point where either as a middle schooler or a high schooler, you could just fall asleep anywhere at any time because you were in a 15 passenger van with 14 other people on a regular basis? Oh man, you know, that's, that's one experience I, I didn't have. I, we, I was though one exception. My, my, I was in a family band that sang Christian music and we traveled around and they had a great big suburban and I could fall asleep in that thing. Like great. And we would have it filled with people, you know, a lot of the time, but I would fall asleep in that heading from one church to the next, you know, performing and stuff like that. So I don't know if that counts. We might have to give like a half, a half a point. For okay. That one. Okay. You're at like, yeah, seven and a half for nine, maybe yeah. if I'm doing math. Right. I just think it's so funny. I started youth pastoring basically when insurances started to say, you know what? It's kind of dangerous to jam pack (laughs) those vans with literally like 14 kids. They're just a little top heavy and that's a lot, (laughs) a lot of liability. And I just remember hearing the parents complain about it. And I always thought I'm like, man, i never felt more fear for my life than in those 15 passenger vans with some 20 something youth pastor driving them. Like that was even as a high schooler, even as a middle schooler, I was pretty yeah. terrified. I'm like, I don't think it should, we should, should we do it doing 70 around this corner? Like that's really fast. I don't know. Like, I guess I shouldn't say anything because all the other kids aren't. So, well, imagine my shock as a youth intern and having being the driver and expected to do that, having never done anything like that before. Like, this is not right. (laughs) 
so you had that experience on the other side. That's crazy. Yes, exactly. So you must have been seen as quite the like Debbie Downer then and like, oh, he's not going to threaten our, he's not going to risk our lives on every, right. every traffic opportunity. No. Right. Wow. That's We're crazy. Do that. That's amazing. All right. Last question, man. This is, I think this actually could set, set some of the tone for the rest of our conversation because okay. so much of it, <laughs> so much of it is wrapped up and especially we're both white males who have pastored have been lead pastors so <laughs> so much kind of undergirds that were you ever a promise keeper oh man i was, I was <laughs> <a> promise keeper. <laughs> yes i was i was pretty confident i was pretty confident that i had you pegged on that one i, I mean promise keeper. how many times did you go to a promise keepers thing i, I went two that i recollect but my my dad was a part of it. We had hats and shirts and everything from the conference. And, uh, two, but I remember going twice. Um, but I, if I went beyond that, I don't remember, but I definitely remember going. I went and uh, I think I only went once, but like our, a mark of a true promise keeper was repping that shirt in public school. Oh, for sure. For that sure. Was, I was definitely repping, you know, I was repping yeah. that whatever that movement was about, but obviously part of a grander narrative in just the American evangelical culture wars of that day. Cause the, the promise keeper thing was really popping off in the mid nineties, I believe yeah. late nineties. And uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like the Venn diagram of white <laughs> evangelicals, like fearing the mark of the beast and how often we put hats with phrases on our foreheads <laughs> like with whatever we're trying to rep and like represent and stuff like that it just like always coincides and it feels like we've never really understood that <laughs> i know looking for the mark in all the wrong places while making yep. our own marks that we always are naming ourselves with <laughs> always always yep. defining ourselves with some other mark that we're effectively replacing jesus with in a lot of yeah yeah which is a profound thing to really mm-hmm. contemplate man Oh, okay. Well, I think we have a little bit of a better understanding of you. Um, I don't okay. know. How do you, how do you feel about that? Because I think you were like maybe eight and a half or 10. So you really fit that millennial evangelical stereotypical yeah. mold. Pretty, pretty darn well close to perfectly. Really solidly. Yeah, definitely. Is that, I mean, is it probably not surprising to you, I would assume, or? No, definitely not. Like given my upbringing, I, I pretty much knew by the time I got to college, like, okay, I'm a, I'm a different person because of how I was raised. I am a different person. So I, I was, I was pretty sure I'd, I'd walk away from that quiz getting almost, if not all of them. So. Well, I really appreciate you being one to, that was the first time we've, we've tried something quite like that, but I figured, man, it might, it might be perfect. So many of, especially this season, so many of our guests have been, pastors that have come from very traditional sort of evangelical upbringings or you know we have a couple slated to be the ones that have kind of been brought up in that same way but have categorically rejected it you know and just said i'm not i'm not going to be a part of that anymore which leaves us with an interesting conundrum um particularly in our last episode at the end of it i mean it's my little brother and i've wanted to have him on the show forever but we really land on a lot of similar thoughts we have a lot of similar opinions of things which makes me really wonder what this whole thing is about because as far as i can tell this pandemic 2020 
civil unrest, uh, Black Lives Matter, the insurrection, just all of it has kind of culminated into this perfect storm of the church really having an identity crisis, like really having this like, well, shoot, what are we known for? What is our most important thing? So I'm, I'm really curious to start sort of the, the actual more serious side of the interview with the question of that. You're a pastor. Uh, have you seen that continue? So many pastors, I mean, myself included, don't even have jobs now. And I would say a lot of that directly correlates to repercussions from the church's decision to emphasize X, Y, and Z and not being able to adapt or be flexible in the midst of such trying times. So what has your experience been as a pastor grappling with some of this, maybe we'll just call it American evangelicalism, having a hard time with its identity, particularly the fact that Nazarenes aren't technically, you know, supposed to be American evangelicals, right? Like that's a whole other conversation, but, but what, what, what's your, what's your opinion? What's your experiences on that? What has it been like to pastor through all of this? Oh gosh. I mean, we could, we could definitely talk for, for hours on what that experience has been like. I think if I had to like boil it down to one, one sentiment, it's the, the discomfort or like willful refusal to question um, systems or structures of authority that benefit them for the sake of like repentance or, or move or reshaping their, their lives. And I think that's why this identity crisis is happening is because we have built structures and systems of polity, whether you're the church of the Nazarene or not, you know, mainline Protestant evangelical churches have built structures of power and authority and are very comfortable in those systems that a lot of what our culture is asking of us to reckon with or repent from, um, they're not willing to reshape those structures. And a lot of uh, clergy in our generation we are, we have been raised in that, know what, I mean, we just did a whole whole game of a lot of the things that we were kind of traumatized or impacted by <laughs> growing up. We know what it, those structures did to us, and yet we've stayed to try to, to make the world a better place. You know, that's what, hopefully what every pastor wants. And now the, the identity crisis is not just coming from the outside, but there are pastors now trying to lead their local churches away from those comfortable power structures into a repentant, renewed, uh, transformed way of being in the world um, that actually encompasses the gospel of Christ that leads towards redemption. And so I think a lot of those underpinnings are, are leading towards that, that, that deep identity crisis that manifests itself personally for clergy, uh, personally for long lifelong Christians who really want to see the church be the church in, in the culture. Um, and those structures that kind of won't refuse or can't um, change uh, because of whatever reason that's given. And it's leading to this, this, this uh, reformation, this kind of dividing lines that are, that are happening right now. I've seen so much, tension from what I, what is maybe an attempt and a conflation of two separate issues the cultural wars that i don't know how long i mean maybe going back to 
thirties, forties, fifties, conflating culture wars with this is what Christians do. When, if you really take kind of a, a more objective examination of those, those two things, there's maybe a lot that's separate in, in the end goals of, of a culture war versus just right. the actual gospel. Yeah. As a well, pastor, have you, have, how have you lived in the middle of that tension? Have you seen those be like the choices people either conflate or are they trying to force you to choose one or the, uh, one over the other? For sure. I think it's, it's been really difficult. The, the, the mentality of, of the church that I pastor now, the, the overriding narrative, and you always want to listen to the ways that people talk about themselves or their church, especially as a pastor, because that's the kind of community, you know, whether you know it or not, that you're actually leading. You can call it whatever you want to, but what they label themselves is the ideals that they're trying to live into. And one of the, the biggest, we're right in the heart of downtown Boise. We can see the great big amphitheater for Boise State Broncos football stadium from our parking lot. And the most overriding narrative I heard from my people was, we're just a small country church. <laughs> you know, and, and so from that mentality of, you know, a very rural patriotic um, I- ideals of, of the congregation led to a makeup of, you know, we, we need to fight these battles to maintain these cultural battles to maintain our Christian influence and integrity in the world. And we need to not get our, our hands dirty in what seems to be more, you know, lots of things were labeled progressive that I just thought were part of, you know, gospel life. <laughs> like you what? Know, like give an example. Like, you know, we wanted to raise a a bunch of money for the homeless and raise a bunch of money for, you know, school kids and things like that. And, um, and really wanted to have good, uh, thoughtful conversations on, on what it meant to love people in the LGBTQ community well. And, you know, so anything that, that, that really, uh, smacked of that was, was, was met with a lot of, uh, opposition. I had a, I had a, a guy, you know, this is an average Sunday, you know, stuff like this would happen all the time, but I had a, had a guy give me, it'll just like stacks of the current conspiracy theories under the Obama administration. <laughs> he handed me a stack of that and he put his finger right in my face and said, if you don't preach against this Satanist that's president right now, you're a panty waste pastor. Oh. And turned around and, and, you know, and I, it, would never have done that because I wanted to shape disciples, right? Not, we're not here to shape a political party, but to shape disciples. And, and he eventually, you know, left when the 2016 election came about and, um, and joined the local Baptist church. And he almost, almost ran over me with his walker in the local grocery store and didn't even recognize who I was, you know, but I, I would, it, from day one, there was this deep tension and I'm a, I'm an Idaho Christian white boy. You know, I, <laughs> I know this culture really well. And so I know the things that we really do need to be reformed from. And so, you know, almost every Sunday I'd get a note or get, you know, kind of yelled at in the, in the hallway after a sermon and, and things like that. And so then once 2016 happened, you know, I heard about QAnon that month. Ugh. 
from the elderly, uh, a few elderly people in my, in my congregation, they sent it to me over Facebook. I was like, what is this? And, but it's the conspiracy theories just jump from one iteration to the next. I didn't think it was going to blow up like it did. And I kept trying to pastor them through that. Like, how are, you know, where are you getting your information? Where are we, are you spending more time in scripture than your favorite news outlets? And, you know, we, once we went offline to, you know, to, for the COVID restrictions, which in Boise, it's more restrictive than it is in other parts of the state, which led to a huge, you know, conflict in, in, in Idaho culture. We, you know, we lost several people to other churches without even, you know, notification of, of that. And, and, and so like, it, it's been really difficult, a stormy, stormy waters, um, in, in, in pastoring in that, that sort of context. Man, our stories are so similar. Uh, I, I just can't help but think maybe you've had the same experience. I'd be really curious to know. So much of the time, a decision would be made. And obviously, in normal times, you're not pleasing everybody, and that's fine. Uh, but especially with such a volatile QAnon-fueled fire yeah. tension, there's, there's all the more speculation as to why you are doing what you're doing. Because in, in, in a normal times, I would have people ask me, I grew up in a very conservative area as well. I grew up in, in Arizona. And it, basically, if you're a Democrat, you're probably going to hell because how could right. you be a Christian, right. right? For sure. And so Republicans and Christian, like that Republican Christian American, that was all, those were all terms that were synonymous with one another. They were just like, obviously interchangeable. So moving, I live in Western Washington. The biggest fear was not, Josiah, be sure to continue to preach the gospel. The biggest fear was always, Josiah, I hope you're not going to become a liberal. Like, yeah. okay, cool. But then in the midst of QAnon, in the midst of, you know, post-2016 with, with a new version of Republican, I suppose, would be safe to say, everything that, that was done in my experience that wasn't in lockstep with, with like a Trump administration's version of Republican Christian American, whatever that is, mm-hmm who's just seen as this overtly liberal anti-church thing. So, so even things like I had someone who happened to see me ordering food when it was safe to do takeout with a mask, right? Like fitting all these things. Like I saw a person for the first time in a couple months post pandemic lockdown. And this was right around the time where Trump started saying some of the things he was saying, which I basically thought were just pandering to the base uh, about well churches are essential easter they should be able to meet in person in easter and they're like so we're meeting on easter right trump said i'm like i don't i don't actually work for trump um yeah. <laughs> we have policy we have to worry about we have insurance and nonprofit licenses we have to do a whole lot of things and whatever trump said literally has almost no bearing on what right. i have to decide to do right. but at least half of the congregation would end up leaving in the first couple months. And so many of the same sentiments was this place is too liberal had nothing to do with like, is, is pastor Josiah preaching the gospel is pastor Josiah, like teaching, teaching us how to be the church. It was, Oh, that was too liberal. Have you had similar, similar experiences? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I, I remember one Sunday uh, having that exact same sentiment said to me really explicitly about um, this, this deep fear of avoiding the appearance of evil. Like that phrase was used quite a bit and evil was obviously 
progressive or liberal and because it's all categorized in, in a, the fundamentalist mindset, which I feel like has invaded every sector of Christianity that you're gonna encounter fundamentalism. Uh, in the fundamentalist mindset, it's all either or stark uh, cut and dry categories. And so like, if, you're, if you lean left at all, then you're automatically a progressive socialist communist. You know, it's, it's, this, it's this big, uh, you know, categories that, that collapse people to this either or mentality. And so, yeah, it was this huge thing to, to avoid um, being, being heard, trying to be heard clearly in that sort of context that I'm, I'm not trying to advocate for one agenda or the other. I'm really trying to preach the gospel that's bigger than either category can imagine, you know, and trying to have people conceptualize that when they are so ingrained and committed and attached to a particular ideology, it's nearly impossible because I, as a pastor have 20 to 30 minutes in a sermon one time a week and they have their favorite news channels and their their favorite, you know, social media pundits and 24/7. Yeah, it's it's their it's their they're just being discipled by those those voices. And so who am I to think that I can compete with that sort of deluge of, of information? Especially when so many of those entities, outlets, conspiracies like QAnon basically train and form a person to be immediately suspicious of anyone that has some other way of viewing the situations that as they unfold. Yeah. Because there's so much, what I've really been wrestling with lately is if we really do believe that, that the love of God is, is the foundation for our faith, especially as Nazarenes who are Wesleyans, you know, <laughs> that like God's love is like deeply important to us. Then, then why is there so much paranoia in our faith? Like there is always this fear of being persecuted. There's a fear that there's some evil cabal that honestly QAnon made the, the evil can like Satan worshiping cabal equally as powerful as God is good. Like, yeah. That is not biblical. Like if, if you're worried that this secret cabal has the power to somehow overthrow God's entire mission and persecute the faithful, if the particular person doesn't get elected or reelected, what kind of fragile God is that? Seriously. <laughs> you know? And so like we are, we are building this theology, not of, of God's powerful, omnipotent love, but of paranoia that somehow this is all going to come falling apart if the, the votes don't go in the right direction. Like, man, have we forgotten what happened in Rome, in Egypt? Like, uh, the, where the Christians were the minority and they had to get by by relying on the, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And like, that's really what I want to see. I, I love the church so deeply that I can't share that allegiance with all these other competing political allegiances in the, in the culture. So currently with, with the pastoring situation as it yeah. stands, yeah, it I mean, it sounds to me that you're saying this and it feels like this for myself, but it's an uphill battle and, and you're losing traction. Is that what it feels like sometimes? Because as you said, there's 30 minutes. You got 30 minutes. Yeah. But if folks the rest of the week choose to be discipled by the thing 
that is literally, literally equating the fear of whatever with God's actual power and love. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how, how do you see, how do you measure success? How do you measure impact? How do you see discipleship as effective or not? How do you, I mean, how do you continue with that? What, what is the sustainability of that in a, in a time like this? You know, somebody, one of my board members actually said something really profound to me just the other day. And it's, it's really stuck with me because oftentimes in, in moments like these, like crisis like these, uh, it's really hard to describe exactly what you're going through. Um, and I, I described it as burnout for a long, long time. Like, man, I'm just burned out. I, I'm not seeing any, you know, fruit. I'm not seeing anything grow from this, this ministry. Um, and, and I do feel like I've lost traction and, um, that, that the, the passion for the gospel is not something that seems to be the, like the main priority in, in Christian culture, what, you know, in, in my context. And so like, how do I make people passionate about the gospel when they're so passionate about the, all of these other things, you know, QAnon is just one name of a source that receives a person's entire passion and, and being. And so I was saying that at a board meeting, you know, a couple of months ago and she looked at me and she's like pastor I think you need to stop saying burnout because burnout has some connotations to do with that you didn't do good enough work and so you're expelling your energy in the wrong direction and she's like I really do think that you need to just take to heart that you've been betrayed Man. Um, and to hear that especially from a board member you know you don't you don't hear that that sort of language often. And it just kind of clicked with me that like, I was raised to believe that, that, the that the church was, was the embodiment of Christ's hope in the world, not, not some political figure or political party, you know, and I was believed that, that we love our enemies and not villainize them or fear, like build entire theologies around fearing them. Uh, I, you know, and, so, and then I was told as a pastor that, you know, we would get our hands dirty serving the community and build this, this community that is based on the love of Christ. And we'd see personal transformation and city transformation because of our devotion to the Sermon on the Mount, the devotion to Christ's words and, and Christ's desire for the world. And, and to, to see that not transpire, but to, to see this other iteration of devotion and allegiance and passion and not only that but to be held accountable to those allegiances to a political party or movement or whatever that if i don't preach the right thing i'm going to be dubbed as the other the enemy and not be listened to for how god might be calling our community to respond in a time like that that is a deep sense of betrayal that's led to a, a, you know if i'm going to be completely raw and, and honest it's led to a crisis of of faith it's led to a crisis of calling it's led to uh i haven't lost my faith in in god i haven't lost my faith that christ jesus is is lord of all died buried and raised from the dead i my relationship with god in christ is everything to me but i've lost my faith in the, the church's ability to be the church and, yeah. and as a pastor whose whole entire life is built on a desire for the body of Christ to be the body of Christ, that is a huge identity crisis. And, and it's deeply traumatizing. And it's, it, it's a deep sense of betrayal that, 
we were promised that the body of Christ was going to be one way. And during the time that the church was needed to be the church the most, in most cases, it felt like they wanted to be something else rather than the body of Christ. And in the process, it seems, and maybe it's just because we're the most honest and unfiltered about it, but it seems a lot of young pastors are becoming more and more disillusioned, chewed up, spit out, uh, given some of the most, I mean, even in in normal pre-pandemic times, oftentimes given the most difficult in crisis churches as well. And so throw in upheaval and unrest, it it only makes it worse. Oh yeah, Man, let's dive more into personal stuff because it's just as a person, I had my own version of, I, I guess, burnout. It's interesting that you say, maybe it's not Maybe you shouldn't call it burnout, but I had to take just a four week leave of absence, a mental health break for myself, because no matter what I did, I had just a litany of folks, just a, a massive amount of folks upset one way or another. Yeah. But you have kind of a unique, you have a unique exacerbator of, of your own maybe tension with mental health and just being a, being a dude named Ben Yeah. on Facebook. I joked with you a little bit earlier, maybe before that we were recording the podcast, you have a, a Nazarene famous level of Facebook support occasionally, <laughs> right? Whatever we want to call that, just name it, just call it. I think one time I kept, I was just like, dang, okay, people are paying attention. He must not be the only one that feels this way. I th- I'm pretty sure one of the things you wrote up, and I can't remember what it was. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I could have done better homework. You had something <laughs> like 800 shares on a status once, or maybe more than that. I, yeah, it was, I was not expecting that. I just... I, you know, you don't, I don't think anyone ever goes out there to like, I really want to be Facebook famous. I, I was really trying to connect with people because I wasn't finding the support in my immediate local context. And so I really wanted to share what I was vulnerably going through. And I think the first time that I actually experienced something like that, like I, I wrote out a lament of my evangelical upbringing compared to what was happening now yes and i logged off and then like the next morning it had it had reached like nine thousand shares oh so i was way off you had nine thousand shares (laughs) i couldn't i honestly was not i almost deleted it because it was scary like like that 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 and man the there was as much hate mail (laughs) as there was like good feedback, like, and a lot of the hate mail is secret. Like they'll, they'll private message you so they can say all of the the curse words they wouldn't say online, I think, but you know, and honestly it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be vindictive. I really was just lamenting. I wasn't attacking or, or anything like that, but that seemed to strike, strike a chord with, with folks. And I've just really been trying to maintain that desire to connect with people in the vulnerable spot that they're doing. And as a white male in a position of leadership, it has connected me to, to hearing the voices of my brothers and sisters of color that I would, would never have gotten in, in a Boise city context, like to be able to, to sit at their feet and learn how they are experiencing this has been a, a stark eye opener for me. My sisters in ministry, my mm. like my word, like hearing their experiences in in the pastorate. Um, so honestly, I count that as the greatest um, side effect of a post, you know, kind of exploding like that. Is that I have been connected with brothers and sisters in context that I would have 
I, I don't know about. And we have been able to lament together and we've been able to connect together over that. And I've learned so much from them. And so honestly, it's been a huge, that is the biggest gift to me, to, to what I've learned from, from those in contexts that are, that are not like mine. I mean, the irony is maybe maybe slightly more well-known than you is Beth Moore coming out <laughs> from, from IBC, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and like the leadership is embroiled with so much scandal right now, right? right. In the international, I, or in, I keep calling it international, independent Baptist church, just some malfeasance on malfeasance. But the biggest talk of the town is, oh my goodness, is she still Baptist? She can't be a pastor if she is right? Like that's the most concerning thing. She is this crazy breath of fresh air online. She probably gets tons of support, just as much hate mail, but for, for you in, in a slightly less, you know, famous way, slightly, you, you, <laughs> slightly, you, you have this support from obviously other pastors, other lay people, other church folks that are like, yeah, that, and whether it's American evangelicalism, whether you're talking about like white supremacy, Christian nationalism, yeah. whatever you're talking about, especially through 2020, your laments, your sort of thoughts, people were like, yeah, that. And so much was brought to the surface because of the, the you know, the meat grinder we were all going through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but on the same token, I have to assume, I have to imagine, especially with some of the things you've already talked about, maybe you were getting Facebook hate as well, but like you weren't getting probably that much personal support for some of these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, I struggle with that. Oftentimes I've had similar in, in a much smaller way, not like public for the, for the Facebook world to see. I've had some of these supportive, you know, whether it's from higher up denominational folks or just pastors in other areas, like, yeah, that's cool. But if I were to say or have those same conversations in, in a personal setting with the congregation, like half of the people could, could stand up, walk out, say, you're a crazy young pastor. What are you thinking? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah. Or even or even struggling with some of the, the normative things that we're supposed to do as pastors, having oftentimes some of the feedback be, well, you're young, you're yeah. young, you're not, yeah. you're not there yet. When you figure it out, it'll be better. Mm-hmm. And kind of always being blamed, never having any of the actual questions or thoughts of, well, this is a real burden for me. Does right. it go, does it ever go away or am I just expected to deal for Did you know that I'm a human being too? <laughs> right. And so much of the feedback is sort of like, well, don't be a human, be right. perfect. Right? right. Like, how do you deal with that? I, cause I mean, I personally, I just can't, I have, I resigned. I'm not currently a lead pastor. Mm-hmm. At some point I felt clearly God telling me, yo, this, you, you need to be done that you need to be done with that. No one needs to continue to sort of figuratively bang their head against the wall, get nowhere yeah. with a thing. And sure. I, I'm sure lots of folks may blame me for a lot that happened and that's fine, but you have this weird tension of maybe equal parts, but like a larger, broader support system online and probably not much support in your actual real physical context. How, how does that mess with your mental state? Gosh, man. <clears throat> Excellent excellent questions here man i really appreciate you asking these things it's it has been so like you i think the best place to start to answer that is like you talked about being young pastors being put into um old 
old like churches in crisis. And that's definitely what, what happened to me and unbeknownst, like they played it up as if, you know, I'm starting this new assignment. It was super exciting, but like from year one, it was pretty evident that it's, it's a, it's a church in crisis that wasn't, has been mismanaged and really the people were just trying the best that they could to keep the thing afloat. But I had, I had 11 deaths my first six months in, in my pastorate and, you know, having that many funerals. And then, you know, I was the youngest person uh, in the church by like, I was, I was 20, 28 when I took the church and me too. uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so, and like the next, the next youngest person was, you know, a, a boomer in there, you know, they were 51, 52. And, and so like, that's a big, that's a big age gap for wanting to grow younger, right? They want uh-huh. to grow younger and, and be more vital and things like that. And my, my first board meeting, I'm sorry, I have to, just before I forget, I had a board member say, you're the age of my grandkids. Right. And there was just like this silence at the first board meeting, like, yep. <laughs> I told you before I got here how old I was. Are we just now realizing the other foot dropped? Like, what what do we do yeah. with that? <laughs> well, and seriously, like the the young being a young pastor and stepping into a role like that, I was not prepared for how much my youth would be a detriment. You know, because I was the age of half of their grandkids or kids even you know so whenever I would say something like that I really was treated as 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 a child and oh that's sweet honey that's nice I'm glad you think that yeah like even deep discomfort in calling me pastor right which like made me respect even more when like who I count now as my spiritual grandfather he's he's gone gone on to to be with christ but he was 86 year old nuclear physicist and called me pastor from the from the first day like i was his pastor and he let me disciple him like there that that was such an honoring relationship but it felt like that was very rare rather than common in in that and so i felt you know i was living in the parsonage um right next to the church on a, you know, in, in a little neighborhood uh, next to downtown Boise. And I was single. I, you know, only had a, had a dog and uh, leadership in itself is isolating. You know, I didn't, I was a different person coming back from seminary than my family even knew. And so like, I was just utterly thoroughly alone feeling the need to then bring and fix this church going forward. And so by, by 2016, when everything started to, to happen, I had a severe, you know, mental, mental breakdown because, you know, there was just such a deep resistance and stronghold there. The most common phrase I heard was pastors come and go, but the board stays the same. Oh, dude, that's so passive aggressive. I heard that so many times I lost count after a while. And so like when everything happened in 2016, like I meant to hit a mental breaking point and I had my very first like suicidal ideation one night I was laying in bed and it hit it all just hit a breaking point. I had some, you know, I was, you know, deeply looking for a, 
you know, marriage in the future and, you know, going through romantic troubles and stuff like that. And, and so like, yeah, how do you I, date and lead pastor and have me. mental breakdowns? All at Yeah, once? absolutely. Like there's, there's just no handbook for that. And so like, I'm laying there at night and I have this feeling, this, this desire to take action or, or at least to see what that felt like, you know? And so I started to get up to take action in my 75 pound boxer crawled up on my chest and just laid there. Like she, wow. she sensed it. <laughs> I, you wow. know, I, I'm sure. And I just like held her and wept and then called, called the doctor the next morning and my, you know, got signed up with therapy and, and some, some medication and did counseling and, really did next six months did emdr therapy and they're like man you are like you are traumatized like this this stuff that that they were diagnosing in me i was unaware like i was diagnosed with ptsd um and it and it's linked to some of the abuse that i i had like physical abuse as a kid and stuff like that too so it wasn't just pastoring but you know it brought it out that, that trauma. And so like walking through that mental break, uh, was just, I don't know. Like, I know that I've recovered significantly. Like I'm a different person now, thanks to therapy and counseling. I cannot advocate counseling enough. Like it just needs to be as common as exercise in, in your life, especially as a pastor. But I, I don't know if I've fully recovered the passion for pastoral ministry that I had before. I deeply believed that I could make a difference. And when you're not seeing that difference being made, it is utterly soul crushing, utterly soul crushing. It's, it's like someone popped that little dream balloon you were holding on to so desperately as that naive seminarian that's coming to the first church that they're going to pastor. Absolutely. And maybe to add injury to insult, I, this happened to me the moment I came back from my mental leave of absence as a lead pastor last year. People started looking at me sideways, like, are you going to have another breakdown? Oh, yeah. And so it wasn't like, oh, we are so thankful that you were vulnerable and got help. It was more like, can you hack it? Yeah. Yeah. When is it going to happen again? You know, like a, a lot of those, the suspicion after you come back, like, I, I felt a shift now, granted, I don't want to paint my congregation as, you know, villains or whatever. My congregation now is like, it's not the same church as it was when I first came. Like I, I have, I have 28 individuals now that are just so committed to being, to embodying the, the vision that Christ has for the, for the community. And so we've come a long way, but I, as a pastor, like, where I wanted the congregation to be, I, as a pastor, my mental, physical, spiritual well-being, and the motivation for that is, is so damaged and traumatized. Now the congregation is where it needs to be. So like, where, where then do I go for my, my healing and my, my repair and, you know, the people that are going to come back from, we just had our first in-person service last Sunday and the people that came like, want to gladly wear masks and gladly social distance and really like half of them are nurses and they, you know, they're all about caring for the the most vulnerable in society. And that's like what we want to be as a church. And, and so it was wonderful to see everybody, but man, like I was up there thinking like, how am I going to make it through this next year? We have district assembly coming up. And oh. 
Like, am I, how am I supposed to, to recover from all of that, that we just went through and do this next transition and try to make this little church on the corner succeed and thrive after the, all of these hits that we've gone through, you know? That's, that's crazy. I don't think you can get through as a pastor and maybe I, maybe I need to find one. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I don't think as a pastor or any real leader, business owner, anyone that has some sort of stake in like doing things that affect other people under their employee, under their care. I don't think you get through this last year and a half plus, however long it's going to take to get back to whatever normal without having some serious shifts in maybe how you operate, how you function, but maybe just as importantly, what your dreams are for the future. Because at this point, you know, I hear you saying a lot like, wow, I, I've felt a sense of betrayal. You know, maybe you, you felt naive with some of the dreams and, all the things you aspired to have happen under your tutelage and pastoral care and ministry. So with all that considered with, with just what it was like to pastor with what it was like and the toll it took on your mental health, your personal life, all the crazy that's happened. This is the question I've asked almost every pastor so far. And I'm curious to hear your response. Uh, What's next then? Cause it sounds to me like you're, you may be saying, I don't know how sustainable this is. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's the case, then where are we going? What, what does the church look like? What does it look like to pastor? What's next? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been, that's probably the main question that's been occupying my thoughts in this, like, where do we go next locally? Where do we go next nationally? Where do we go next globally as, as the body of Christ? And <clears throat> I think, so my, my, uh, graduate work is in, in church history. And you notice as you're looking at church history, that the church goes through a rotation every five years. It's almost like clockwork. Um, of course, we're over 500 years from Luther's reformation that he sparked in, in Europe. And now we live in a time with, uh, with Twitter and, and Facebook where there's Luther's everywhere, you know, nailing, (laughs) nailing stuff up all over the place. Right. And so what's next really depends on the church's willingness to allow the comfortable money-making authoritative power generating structures, how willing they are to let those things be reshaped, reformed, broken down and forgotten um, so that we can actually repent and become the body of Christ that we need to be. Are we willing to look at our, our idols that have really been revealed these in this last season and come to grips at how much we've accommodated to worship those things? Um, I think if the, the question of what's next highly depends on the church's willingness to be reshaped, reformed, repent, renew, lament over the past, and really reckon with that truthfully so that we can take honest steps forward at repairing and healing uh, in, into the future. I honestly think if we are paying attention evangelism on behalf of Christianity isn't going to look like going on the street corners, trying to save souls for Jesus. Our best evangelistic mode is repentance right now, because whether we 
participated in systemic racism or not, whether we participated in nationalism or not, we, the Christianity, the name that we share with this group was blasted all over the news, like everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you were part of it or not, or stood against it in your local context. That's what the public knows of us now. Hmm. And so are we willing then to repent for these things publicly? Because we can't, we, we can't be so naive that because of how public that transgression was, that we shouldn't have an equally public repentance for our, for our community. Um, this reformation is going to happen and evangelism for the church is going to happen when we repent from these things that we have given ourselves over to rather than, than Christ. It's almost as if we need to call a metaphorical ceasefire from what has been such a staunch tactic of being God's army, right? Like, I mean, if you look at the history of, of the evangelical American normative mode of operation, yeah, so much of it had this militaristic, uh, you know, we have to defend, we have to protect, we have to fight. Yeah. And, and the culmination of that was pretty ugly, especially, yeah. especially very recently, especially on January 6th. Absolutely. I think the best scripture passage we can go to right now for how the church is supposed to respond is when the Syrophoenician woman throws herself at Christ's feet, asking to be healed and he ignores her. And then she asks again, he doesn't listen and also responds later to her, to her pleading that, uh, I have not come to bring, it's not good for the bread of Israel to be cast to the dogs. Mm. You know, that, that, that passage in Matthew just wrecks me every time. Cause like, this is the words of our savior. And she said, yes, but at least the crumbs of bread can be, the dogs can at least have the crumbs of the bread given to the children. Right. Yeah. 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 You know? And so like Jesus, you know, no matter how you interpret that passage, he turns around and says, yep. She's right. <laughs> True. Yep. Like this Gentile woman, outsider, not Jewish, not part of our mode of operandi, where I have come to only secure the house of Israel for God. She comes in an outsider and says, no, the gospel is for us too. And Jesus, our savior says, yep, you're right. And could, like, that is where we are at, as a church now. We have ignored cries for justice. We have said, no, this is only for this kind of people born again. Like we have put strict mechanics and structures around what it looks like to be born again. So much so that we have created groups of outsiders. You name them. The LGBTQ community, like women who don't understand their proper place, let alone all the questions around racism so like yeah. how then are we going to say wow they have cried out for them we've ignored them we've said no this is our mode of operation and then they say yes but this is what your god says Man. when are we going to be brave enough to then say yep they're right so it starts with confession it starts with confession it starts with lamenting it starts with because lament confession has to happen before repentance. And I read this on Twitter the other day, so it's not my own words and I don't remember who posted it, but repentance is not a liberal agenda. <laughs> like 
justice <laughs> is not a liberal agenda. Like if we understand history well, we can really clearly look at where we need to repent from, especially recent history. And so repentance, lament, and confession have to be the modes that shape our evangelism, shape our discipleship, shape our preaching, shape our posture of service in our culture. If we're not willing to do that, then there is no what's next. Mm. Honestly, I don't think we can recover as the body of Christ unless we confess, lament, and repent. So what does that look like? What does a church doing that look like? What does what changes? I mean, because so many of the, the concerns I had were, well, what if I don't get my thing? And, you know, whatever the thing was, was like, right. well, what if the Sunday morning thing that I really like is, is going to be different? And so many of the things are fear-based. They're so, you know, that it's just change. It's different. So what do you imagine changes? What do you imagine stays the same? What do you imagine, practically speaking, pastors do that's different? or or added on to what is already there what does it look like for congregations to gather i mean does everything potentially have to be up for debate everything potentially has to be up for evaluation as to whether or not it actually is part of this kingdom ethic this this gospel being lived out and proclaimed right right man so like i don't claim to have a a, you know clear-cut answer but i i think my my thoughts on that are are two or threefold one, I'm not in a position of authority that can make systemic change in my denomination. I'm, I'm just not. And I, I am trying to make deep systemic change in my local church, you know, trying to bring about this posture of confession, repentance, and renewal. But that, that's only one area of how much we need to uh, reckon with as, as American Christians. Um, but I, so I think those who are in positions of authority and power have a lot of responsibility now to make some really deep momentum change and transformation in Christian systems, polity, practice, uh, you know, understanding of things to, to lead the way in that conversation. Um, but secondly, If we look at John and Charles Wesley, you know, John Wesley was an Anglican priest. The Church of England was really resistant to a lot of things that need to happen. And look what was born out of that. Like Mm -hmm. the whole Methodist class, you know, class studies, uh, camp meeting uh, structure that literally staved off a Great Depression in Europe. Mm-hmm. because they were so radical about their their care and love for the marginalized the oppressed and the least among them and john model, john and charles modeled that in their own personal lives as well and so i think that gives us a little echo of what could possibly happen here what sort of non-traditional things can we do still being apart because he never broke off from the anglican church yeah. What sort of things can we be a part of this? Like, look, look, the Holy Spirit's leading this way and I'm going to do, be a part of that and do that well. And so local church pastors might be needing to look in their context for those sorts of movements. How do we bring about a new sense of discipleship in like that's reminiscent of those class meetings in our modern context? Well, it's just, it's so interesting. It's almost ironic to think about the fact that Sunday school was once new. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and it intentionally was, I, I believe I read this and you're the church history buff. So I, please help, help if I get it all wrong. It was intentionally meant to literally be a school for kids who couldn't afford the private educations of the day. Yep. 
and yeah. and may, maybe they were the lower class factory working children and yeah. sunday school was literally like let's teach you how to read using the right. bible let's teach right. you math let's do this stuff and it was the church that was standing up for justice giving yeah. kids the opportunity to be educated and now <laughs> the irony the full circle thing is now young pastors like you and me are, are fighting this cultural war of well we can't not have sunday school it's how right. we disciple people it's like <laughs> It's not even what it once was. And it Absolutely. was once it's, Sunday school was countercultural. It like, was. So like every, every breakoff, and this, gets, this is where it gets really nerdy. The Reformation itself was because the church had become power hungry and, and greedy in regards to economic resources. Like that was some of the main, like the indulgences is what sparked it. That's oh. greed and power, right? And then you have Wesley looking at the Church of England. That was a byproduct of the Reformation. Power hungry, greedy. Started the, the Sunday school class movement that was countercultural. Then the Methodists were born. And as soon as Phineas Brzee that came along and looked at the Methodists and like what was happening, they became power hungry and greedy. A church of affluence, to use his words. He broke off and started the Church of the Nazarene that was literally named for those the world thinks nothing good about. Like nothing that's good can why, come from Nazareth. Right. Those who come from Nazareth. That's that's the kind of church that we're here for, for those people. And now full swing, look at where we are today as, as a denomination. What needs to happen to, so that we don't also fall into a, being a church of affluence that's comfortable with power and greed? Like, yeah. And so like these movements, they're there in the books. Like, why have we not learned these lessons along the way so that we don't get over into hunger for political power and, and wealth? And, and so like these new movements that are birthed out of not wanting to be a part of that structure anymore, because the Holy Spirit is still doing the work among the least of these that has always been done since the creation of humanity. The Holy Spirit is doing the work among the least expected, most vulnerable people. And that's where the church needs to be. And mm. so like that, I think the third thing then that that needs to influence in a pastor's heart and mind is that the, the pastor needs, and this is something that I've been struggling with. The pastor needs to not fight fire with fire. And I would say that in, in colloquial language, you can't fight fundamentalism by being more fundamentalist. So like <laughs> if, if I am so convicted of a certain premise of justice, right? Let's just take that word, that definition, however you define it. And it's so opposed to standard traditional fundamentalism. You can't be just as cut and dry and dogmatic as the fundamentalists you've broken off from, right? It has to be different. It has to be gentle, has to be kind. It has to be um, loving, peace bringing, like all of the fruits of the spirit, right? Doesn't like gives over for self-control. You can't be, go over into some other fundamentalism because of the fundamentalism you're trying to break, break away from. And that needs to shape an intentional uh, loving movement. Well, you said it right at the very beginning, don't fight with yeah. like, just don't, it's not a fight. Like yeah. it's not a war. It's not a battle. It's, it's a giving up of things. It's a yeah. humility thing. It's that Jesus said it. He said it pretty clearly. It was a thing I said a lot. And I don't know. I don't know how comfortable people were hearing this. Jesus basically said to follow me, you need to deny yourself yeah. daily and take up your cross 
that's yep. what it takes. You need yep. to, you need to let it all go. You need to turn over the power that the, you know, influence the aspirations for those things need to, to not be there. Uh, it's not about a colonialization, forcing others to, to agree to morals and ethics that you have decided are the best for everyone to live by. It's not, we need to give up the, and we're still in some, it, there's always a culture war, a worship where there's some war. Sure. We just, it's not supposed to be a right. war. Well, you know, that saying when everything's, uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail, right? Yes. <laughs> I actually coined my own phrase in regards to that for, the, for evangelicalism, when everything is a war, everything turns into a battle. Yeah. And, and everyone becomes a potential enemy. But mm-hmm. if you actually step away from that paranoia, we're not, we're literally not at war and we're not called to war. Like, so yeah. okay, let's say there is a cultural war going on. Christians are not called to war. We're called to take up our cross. Like yep. that is so contrary. Like Peter was like, what the heck? You're not supposed to be in a dead Messiah. That doesn't lead a revolution against Rome. Like that's, we want an insurrection against Rome. And so like, this savior says, no, that you have the ways of, of earth on your mind, not God's ways. And so Christians are called to a very different way of being in the world that is shown by this savior that washes disciples feet, hang out with people that he gets in trouble for hanging out with, like speaks about radical charity and generosity among his people, speaks about nonviolent peaceful responses to things when you're being persecuted, like a very different way of being in the world that we miss when we make everything a war and a battle. Yep. Rides a donkey. Lots of people scratch their heads and say, what, what are you doing? That's weird. (laughs) So man, I, I hear so many things. I, I guess I would love to put a nice neat little bow on this. If, if I could, if I could attempt to what I hear you saying for my own, I mean, I'm, I'm taking it all in and I'm mm-hmm. sure, I, I don't know, hopefully we're not nerding out too much for listeners or whatever, but <laughs> what I hear you saying is you're not sure what's next, but you're here for it. Like whatever the Holy Spirit has cooking, we, you're ready for it. You, you want to be about it. Uh, and it's, it's gotta be different. Is, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. My, my church history professor would always say, wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is the church. Mm. And sometimes I get concerned that like, People talk about a lot about how millennials are leaving the church or the younger generation is leaving the church, but I oftentimes get concerned that the church has left them and, and the structures are still there, like the bones and the skeletons, but we, we are trying to reanimate these things without the breath of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so how, how then what's wherever the church is, wherever the Holy Spirit is, that's where I really want to be. Um, and at this point, honestly, I, I don't care what titles it comes with. I don't care what sort of positions that comes with. I really want to, to be a part of the Reformation and, and part of, of what is to come, wherever the Holy Spirit is leading. So like, I'm, I'm ready for that, but man, I'm going to need some personal renewal and, <laughs> and healing from the, the stuff we just came through as, as, as a church. Man, we always ask for a final thought or, or maybe just what gives you hope to end and it's oftentimes we, we have some self-awareness, even though stereotypically millennials are just entitled and they have no self-awareness, right? Yeah. They're just opinionated and yada, yada, yada. We maybe sometimes are, are critical of the church slightly. Not that there isn't valid reasons to be that, 
But I, I was going to ask what gives you hope. And it seemed like you already answered that, but I thought I'd give you, you know, another, if there's any ending on a high note sort of a thing, because yeah. man, we dealt with some stuff that your story, there's so many things like, yep. Yeah. I feel a little too close to that one. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. I felt that you're still here though. You're still a part of it. You haven't thrown in the towel yet. Maybe I'll say, I don't know. I can't speak for you, but sure. what is it about this that gives you hope enough to continue to engage, to continue to try to lead, to can continue to try to pastor, however that looks in the future. What is, what is that hope that, that you have that continue keeps you going? Yeah. You know, it's, I love, I love history so much. Like I almost get teared up thinking about how much God has revealed in, in history and so many movements of, of, of God have survived the worst atrocities in, in the world. And if you, if you look closely enough at, at history, like we've been through similar things like this. And there's actually like um, people that you can exemplify, like Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even Martin Luther. Like there are people uh, who are reformers wanting the church to be the body of Christ. And, and the legacy that they've left behind uh, gives me hope. And how I see those people manifested in peers and voices um, that, that I would have never been able to read. Uh, like I'm, I'm in the middle of stamped from the beginning right now and the color of compromise and all the color of law, like all of these, these, these books that, that I don't know if I would have been uh, revealed to if it hadn't have been for a lot of these things. And it's made me really aware that of things that I need to repent from. Like, and I can't expect repentance from the church until I repent myself, right? I can't expect transformation until I look for transformation myself. And especially as a white male pastor in Idaho's context, like that is something that's deeply needed from everyone who looks and works like me, right? And so that, that gives me hope is that the opportunities for repentance are everywhere. And the legacies left behind from from times in the past where we've needed reform, that gives me hope too, that something can happen when people are able to step up and speak truth to power and move things in the right direction. So that, you know, that gives me hope. How can we, how can we carry on that legacy uh, into where we are right now? Man, I just, uh, I, <laughs> I was just reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's autobiography actually so so many things i just kept i kept reading and i just kept scratching my head because you know not on the one hand, one right what not the metaxas oh one. no <laughs> heaven no not the metaxas one um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation that's not bonhoeffer <laughs> yeah i was like even the people like guys where did you get your sources from this right like, there's a lot of this is interesting uh no the i can't remember which one it is there's a couple more yeah. reputable autobiographies and i can't remember which one it was but you know i have a very similar i mean that's i i'm a weird history buff too i didn't get a a degree in it or anything but i just read some of these you know church fathers and mothers that have gone before us and that i don't think they ever intended 
to be such huge shifters or reformers. And I think even many of them never saw the fruits of their labor. Right. Right. Which is sort of a, a humble thing in and of itself, because so much of our current motivation tends to be, I want immediate, I want it right now. I want, you know, no delay of gratification for me. No, right. thank you. Right. But seeing the legacy that they they left behind them and, and the good that it did, not just for, for those inside of four buildings with a steeple, but for the mm-hmm. world around them is something that, I, I don't know, in some small way gives me hope and it makes me want to aspire to, to emulate in some small way myself. Because yeah. otherwise it's really easy to just throw in the towel and say, ah, it's too much garbage for me. I'm not yeah. interested. It is. It's, it's, I don't know how, if I'm able to quote, well, maybe I just will anyways. I may have gotten in trouble already for some of the other things I said, but (laughs) St. Augustine and reading his, his, uh, his journal, you know, in, in seminary, I, one's quote that's always stuck with me is the, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother, you know, and like so much of that resonates i think with christ's ministry with the disciples his call for the church that i i was introduced to jesus from this church and Mm -hmm. and so like if that deep love is there how will i be a pastor to the church as much as i'm a pastor to the people the church wants to reach like that we're we're called to disciple each other first Mm -hmm. right um, and that call of a pastor is, is something I take really seriously. And so I, I can't abandon that no matter where I, where I land. And so that's, that's my hope is that, that Christ leads me to be the pastor that I, that I really do need to be in my context. Well, that gives me hope, Ben, that you're, you're maybe sticking around. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> Neither <laughs> of us seem to be aspiring to be you know, Joel Osteen or anything like that, which is probably good. Maybe the church needs a little bit, uh, a little more just simple, humble pastoral leadership yeah. that's not aspiring yeah. to to have 70,000 people in a mega stadium sure. sanctuary or whatever. But hey, I have really appreciated the time. I appreciate your willingness to share in, in a very vulnerable way what is what has been going on in your life, both as a pastor but also just as a person and really just, I really appreciate all the feedback. You've given me lots of things to think about. I'm sure our listeners will agree, but yeah, I I really appreciate the the time you've taken to be on the show with me today. I really appreciate you, uh, Josiah, and the work that you're doing here. And I'm, I am really appreciative of our friendship. That's, that's kind of grown out of this chaos of both of our ministries and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, the commiseration conversation. Yep. Like, hey man, <laughs> when are we commiserating over stuff again? No, nah, same, man. I'm excited for what's next. I appreciate the new friendship. It's great. Uh, thanks for being on the show. It's been it's been a joy. Yeah, great to be here, brother. Before we before we end, we got to do the sponsor plug, and then I'll give give y'all the outro. So hold tight. Here's a fun here's a fun sponsor plug. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you would do us the, the favor, the honor of rating, reviewing, or even sharing this podcast with others, we would greatly appreciate it. And stay tuned for the next Millennial Pastor Podcast. A couple spoilers. We have more folks coming down the line. We have pastors doing unique things that are new to the show. We have returning pastors that are going to share what it has been like to pastor over these past couple of years. And we may have another none or done or two 
willing to jump on the show, which I have to be honest, those are some of the most illuminating conversations we have. So if you like what the show's about, if you like hearing from millennial pastors, if you like hearing from young people who are just disillusioned and, and want to be honest about some of their struggles, then please stay tuned for the next Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, I've been your host, Josiah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>